Hey there, this is Daniel, lead pastor of Christ City, Surrey. I pray that this sermon would be used by God in conjunction with you belonging to a local church. If you're not part of a local church, let me invite you to join us. We gather each Sunday at 16126 93A Avenue in Surrey for worship, word, and sacrament. If you want to be a part of or hear more about what we believe God has called us to, you can visit ChristCityChurch.ca. I hope that what you're about to hear expands your joy and leads you to fall more in love with Jesus. Today's scripture is Exodus 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord God? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, and you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall still impose on them. You shall by no no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, Let us go off and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid upon the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words." So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the lands of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task, each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? And the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your own servants are beaten. But the fault is is your own people. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. And they met Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. 
and you have not delivered your people at all. You may be seated. Well, good morning. It is uh, my joy to be bringing God's word to you um, today. It's my understanding that, that Daniel will be serving in kids' ministry, uh, so I thought it would be fitting that, that I preach for about 50 minutes. Amen. <laughs> so if, if it seems a little long, bear with me. There's a method to the madness. It's all for the cause. Um, well, as we've been working through Exodus, it's all been leading up to this, a showdown between Yahweh and Pharaoh. Uh, from the beginning of Exodus, we see that Pharaoh believes the Israelites belong to him. He can use them to build cities, do whatever he wants. And then in Exodus 3, God reveals himself to Moses and says for the first time, I've heard the affliction of my people, my people, the Israelites. And he promises Moses that he will deliver them. So it's clear there's going to be a clash. Uh, but here in chapter 5, we see the beginning of that confrontation where the direct claims of Yahweh and Pharaoh meet. When Moses walks up to Pharaoh and says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, it's officially on. Uh, so both of these rulers believe the Israelites belong to them, but there's actually more going on. The writer of Exodus actually uses the same word to describe how both rulers are, to intent, or are intended to relate to them, okay? So when God tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh in Exodus, he says, let my son, speaking of Israel, go that he may serve me. Now the Hebrew word that is translated serve is the same word that is translated slave in Exodus 1.13. So they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And then again in Exodus 5.18, when he says, go now and work. It's the same root word used in all three examples. Now, now further, seven times in the book of Exodus, Moses is going to say, let my people go. But every time, it's followed up by either so they can serve me or so they can hold a festival. So what's the point? From one very important perspective, God is not calling the Israelites into a, a fundamentally different type of relationship than the one that they had with Pharaoh. Rather, he is calling them away from serving one cruel master to serving one holy and good master. We, we could put the language even clearer that, than that. Uh, Yahweh came to liberate, but not liberate them from being enslaved, rather from being enslaved to a cruel master and to bring them into possession of a good master. Uh, see, to God, the problem is not that the Israelites had a master. L living your life in complete service of someone is not the problem. It's not that someone else has complete authority over what you do and what you say and your motivation. That's not the problem. The problem is that they are enslaved to the wrong master. Uh, when the writers of the New Testament often sign off their letters, they'll say, Quite literally, like Paul, a slave of Christ. And of course, I need, I need to be careful because when, when we hear that word, it, it, it's, it's very different. It's used in a very different way than what we think of in our culture, right? The Bible is very against slavery in the sense that you and I and our culture thinks of it. But we can't uh, just miss what's happening here. God comes to the Israelites who are oppressed under bondage and says, I will take you out of your bondage, but this is not freedom from. 
so much as it's freedom to serve a master who is truly liberating. Now, now of course, this is, this is not the way our culture thinks about it. For our, our culture, uh, freedom is being able to throw off the shackles of being bound to anything or anyone. It's the ability to reject any ideology and do whatever it is that you deem is authentic to you. That's freedom. For, forget this exchanging one master for another. Freedom is total liberation. But, but here's the problem with that view and, and what the Bible sees. If you dethrone one master, you will be, by necessity, replace it with another. Uh, maybe, say you came from a family, uh, the, the value family, right? And they put a lot of pressure on you to start a family of your own. But you decide, I'm going to break free from that. I want freedom from that uh, so I can fulfill or, or go pursue a fulfilling career, right? And so with everything you have, you go and you pursue a career. Well, what have you done? You thought you were free, but you've just exchanged the master of family for the master of career ambition. Or maybe you grew up in a, a conservative home. You might say a repressive home. And so you break away from all its restrictions and choose to pursue your own desires. What's your new master? What's your own desires? And you have to comply with anything they ask you to do. And, and you're, once again, you're mastered. And, and soon your life becomes a total mess. But then maybe you, you fight back against those desires and you say, they're betraying me. I can't become who I want to become. I can't accomplish what I want to if I'm just following these desires. So you turn to self-improvement and then self-actualization becomes your new master. See, you, you can throw away one ideology, but you can't choose to not replace it. To not replace it to live a life of radical freedom it is utterly absurd. L listen to what Christopher Watkin, a, a theologian, says. To be radically free, one would need to serve neither tradition nor innovation, neither one's own reason nor one's own desires, neither ideology nor anarchy. Such a radically free life is not only unlivable, it's, it's unimaginable. See, uh, a, a radical freedom like that would require you to live a, live a life with no commitments, no relationships, nothing real. Uh, because the moment you start living for anything, the moment you enter a relationship with someone and commit yourself to anything, you must begin living with constraints. You have a job, restrains what you can do during work hours. You gotta go to bed the night before. You get married, well, that's gonna change some things, right? So a life of meaning will mean a life of restrictions. You can't say yes without saying no. The question then becomes, if I have to live for something, and to do so will ultimately master me, which master can I trust with my whole life? Which master will lead to a life of flourishing, even with the restraints that it puts on me? So this morning, we'll spend our time looking um, at life under the two masters in our text. First, life under Pharaoh, and then life under Yahweh. Point one, life under Pharaoh. It's important that we understand how we are to interpret Pharaoh, right? So we can draw out all the implications that this story has for us today. Like We know he was an oppressor of the people of Israel in Egypt, but is he just that? What about us? Like We don't live in Egypt today. 
Uh, to appreciate his significance, there's two things we need to see. First, uh, for the Israelites, they could not talk about who they were as a people without speaking of the Exodus event. It was fundamental to their identity. They were a people who had been brought out of slavery by the mighty hand of God. They had taken cover under the blood of the Lamb, and they had trusted in God as their deliverer. They had been given the law, so they knew how to act, and they'd been promised an inherited land. That's who they were. And of course, the more you think about it, the more you realize that that story is the Christian story. We have been delivered from our enslavement to sin by the mighty saving work of Jesus Christ, whose blood atones for our sin and makes us right with God. He has given us the law and is teaching us how to live and has promised that one day we will be with him in the new creation. So the Israelite story is our story. Their enslavement to Pharaoh under an oppressive master represents our enslavement under sin. So secondly, we need to see that the Bible has many types which involve recurring themes of people or things which are patterned after some type head. If you read through Romans, you, you might have heard that Adam was a type of Christ. Now, now, these types serve as threads that run through the entire Bible, connecting it and helping us see and fully appreciate the significance of that which they point to. What the biblical writer is inviting us to see in Exodus, and I believe very clearly here in chapter 5, is that Pharaoh is a type of a serpent king. He's patterned after the devil himself, and, and this is a theme that's going to run through all of Scripture. We see the, the serpent first show up in the Garden of, of, um, Garden of Eden, don't we, in Genesis, where he deceives Adam and Eve into sin. And then Pharaoh here, then we'll see King Ahab, King Herod, um, who is actually very similar to Pharaoh, you, you may have noticed. And then even the Pharisees, who, who twist God's word and actually oppress the Israelites with it. John the Baptist calls them what? A, a brood of vipers. Finally, in, in Revelation, the devil is, is going to be pictured as a giant serpent, a dragon. And, and there are other examples, but you get the point. Back to Pharaoh. Uh, and immediately, in the ancient Near East, uh, they, they would have recognized and associated Pharaoh with snakes, given the typical headdress, right? But, but perhaps more, the more explicit connection is made in Ezekiel when he refers to uh, Pharaoh basically the same way that Revelation 12 does. He says this, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. Um, so here's what, let's put it, put it all together. Here's what we see. God, inspiring the biblical writers by the Holy Spirit, has grouped this type of serpent ruler, ruler figures throughout all of Scripture so we can better understand the devil himself. And, and in doing so, he shows us how he operates. Right? Because we need to see that Pharaoh's schemes are actually the devil's schemes. And those are the same schemes that me and you face today. Now, in, and second thing, Exodus is intended to be read both historically and allegorically to represent the follower of Yahweh's release from the bondage of sin and their journey towards consummation of their salvation and life in the new creation. 
So as we walk through this text, you're going to notice some striking similarities between Pharaoh and the serpent in the garden. First, uh, Pharaoh, he scoffs at Yahweh's authority. Look at, look at Exodus uh, 5, 1 and 2. Uh, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Look at, look at Pharaoh's first words. Instead of responding to Moses' request, he takes aim at the authority of the one who gave the command. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? It's, it's not a matter of, does this request make sense? It's instantly about pride. Some commentators have, have actually said that given the religious views that, that Pharaoh would have held and back in the day that were common, it, it would have been the logical move to actually let the people go appease their God, right? Lest their God kill them as punishment. That's what they believed. And we, we see that understanding play out in Moses' imperfect view of Yahweh in the next verse. Look at, at, at uh, verse 3. It says, Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall on us with pestilence or with the sword. But Pharaoh, he's too swollen by pride to consider the beliefs that, that were widely held, right? And he risks losing his entire labor force. Now, of course, we need to point out, Yahweh would have never done this. But Pharaoh had to believe that was a possibility based on what all the other religious beliefs were at the time. But Pharaoh, he's, he's filled with pride. He's just like Satan, the serpent, and he scoffs at God's authority. They despise the thought that anyone should have authority over them. Now, we could say that this opening statement from Pharaoh is, is much more than just a first response. It's actually the motto of the unseen kingdom that he represents. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? See, Moses comes to Pharaoh thinking, we need to get away from you. You are the problem. We need to get out of your country. But what the Israelites do not understand yet is it's not Pharaoh who they should really be fearing, but it's the spirit of Pharaoh that operates in the Israelites as well. The terrifying truth of this scene is that the same spirit of Pharaoh, the same spirit that typifies the devil himself, operates in the Israelites. And it operates in us. What we have to come to grips with is that when we sin, we're, we're not only disobeying, it's a total affront to God's authority. Now, now, sometimes we challenge that authority just almost subconsciously, right? We don't even think about it. We've snapped. We've lost our temper. We've had uncontrolled anxiety. The flesh just automatically works according to that principle. But there are times when we willfully sin, we consciously choose to work against God's will, and in those moments, we scoff at God's authority. And with Pharaoh, we say, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And to the extent that we live like that, we show ourselves to look like our former master, who is still, to some extent, operating and influencing our lives. 
See, we need to realize the gravity of our offense when we sin. It's not just a whoops. It's not just a, yeah, I sinned. But it's not a biggie. We're all sinners. Like, do you remember what the first prohibition in the Bible is? What is it? But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Which commentators have said, this is basically akin to us deciding what's good and right in our own eyes, right? It's, it's us deciding, I'm going to be my own master. It's exactly what Pharaoh says. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? And what does God say is the appropriate penalty for rebellion against his authority? For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Oh, friends, this is, this is so important. If we forget this, if we tweak or miss this fundamental truth that the penalty for sin is death because it's a rejection of God's authority, it's cosmic treason, man, the Bible just doesn't make sense. The, the, the justice of God doesn't make sense. The holiness of God doesn't make any sense. The urgency of our sanctification doesn't make any, our, any sense. We, we see ourselves as those who have sinned little, who have been forgiven little, and therefore, who love the Lord little. It's one of the linchpins that makes sense of the rest of the Bible. Pull it, the rest doesn't work. So we need to recognize that voice under all of our sin. Who is the Lord that I obey his voice? Number two, um, he, he oppresses and gives no rest. Uh, but the king, this is, this is Exodus 5, verse 4, it says this. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. Uh, what, what did Moses come asking of Pharaoh? When Moses re, uh, states his request after the failed attempts, he says, please let us go three days. Three days. And I know we don't know if that's one way or if it's round trip, but it was a short break for people who essentially, they have no time off, very little or none. And Pharaoh, what does he say? Absolutely not. No rest. Just like the serpent in the garden, Adam and Eve, right? They have rest with God. No oppression. Satan comes in, robs them of their rest, oppresses them. Same, same person. Now, what does this teach us about being enslaved to sin? being enslaved to the devil's schemes. Well, the, the devil is content, really, for you to be enslaved to anything, right? Your phone, exercise, work. He can even warp Christian service. And, and, but one of the clear signs that he's enslaved you is you just can't put it down. There's no rest from it. it it's pretty clear, like, if you're a, if you're a willful um, workaholic, right? You just won't stop working. We, we might describe you as enslaved, right? But, but what if you, you can force yourself to actually put it down at the end of the day, but then you can't stop thinking about it, right? You can't seem to turn your brain off. There's absolutely no rest given. Or you should be heading to bed, but you keep scrolling. You can't seem to stop thinking about how other people are thinking about you. There's, there's no rest. You're living under the reign of Pharaoh. See, when you're not controlled by how successful you are at work, when your identity isn't wrapped up in that, you're able to come home and you can rest. And maybe you didn't reach your full potential that day. Maybe there is more you could have done. But you can rest knowing 
that's not what defines you. It's, it's not where you get your worth from. Listen, the, the Christian has been liberated from needing anything. They have need of nothing apart from what can never be taken away from them. If you have Jesus Christ, you can hold everything loosely in your life. You've got the only validation you need, friends. It, it doesn't mean you won't work hard, but you won't go to work needing to be appreciated in the same way. You can rest knowing you have all the validation you need in Jesus Christ. Third thing it shows us about living under Pharaoh. When the devil sees the Lord coming into your life, he goes on the attack. He comes to you with trials and lies, and he tries to convince you that God doesn't love you. Um, this is picking up in verse 6. It says, The same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. By no means shall you reduce it. Let heavier work be laid on them, that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. See, in Egypt, there, there were no large quantities of stone. So the main building material was mud bricks. And, and to make those mud bricks, you needed straw. The straw was the binding agent, and, and they were pretty flimsy without the straw. Now, collecting large amounts of straw, it, it would have been not that hard for the Egyptians as they were harvesting their crops. The, the straw came from uh, the stalks, from the plants. Uh, but we're told... The Israelites aren't sent off to go harvest crops where they could collect large amounts of straw. They were told they're scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. So basically what they're doing is they're collecting the little bits at the bottom of plants that had already been harvested. It's tedious work and it makes their job essentially impossible. And for failing to complete their quotas, they're beaten for their work. So just like the snake in the garden, uh, this is actually a pretty shrewd move by Pharaoh. Uh, no one ever said that, that the devil isn't smart. Um, Pharaoh knows that uh, Moses has actually just given the Israelites a bunch of morale, right? He's, he's, he said, I'm going to get you out of here. And, and so the Israelites are thinking, Yahweh is going to get us out, right? We believe in Yahweh. Here's how he tries to turn it around. He, he attempts to show them that Yahweh is actually responsible for making their situation worse. And then he goes and he suggests that Yahweh is a liar. He says that the words from Moses' mouth are lying words. He's doing his absolute best to drive a wedge between Yahweh and his people. And he's not bad at it. Now, see, that's exactly what Satan does. Before God comes and saves you, there's already a wedge between you and God, right? The devil's just happy to let you carry on in your slavery to sin. And he'll even actually give you the illusion of being happy, right? Often those who don't follow God, they, they seem pretty unbothered. Uh, we hear David lamenting over that in the Psalms, like, God, what's going on? Why are these, why are these people so happy? But then God shows up, he saves you, he starts the process of bringing you out of slavery, and what, what does the devil do? He kicks it into high gear. Before his primary tool was convincing you you should be like God. Who's the Lord that you should obey his voice? You shouldn't say no to anything. 
But now he changes his approach to convince you that there's no way that God loves you. First, he brings hardship into your life. He begins with the lies. How could God let you go through something so hard? If God was really powerful, he, would, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen to you. There's no way God loves you. But there's another way in which Satan attempts to make the believers doubt that God loves them. Listen to what Revelation 12, 9 to 10 says. It says, And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before God. Day and night he stands. He accuses us before God, saying, you can't love them. Look at that broken past. Look at all that sexual sin. Look at that selfishness. He brings those same accusations against us, doesn't he? He brings up all the terrible things we've ever done. He smears them in our face. It's a painful experience. He turns shame into a powerful weapon. He tries to convince you there's no way God could love you. And in doing so, he tries to devour you. Now, his accusations are true. He brings to us true things. But the conclusions he draws are a lie. Don't we know that? Now, now the Israelites actually give us an example of exactly what not to do. Look, pick it up in 15 and 16. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, and yet they say to us, Make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is with your own people. See, after uh, Pharaoh substantially increases the Israelites' low, they go back and they go back to Pharaoh for relief. And this actually gives us a very good look into how the Israelites view themselves. Remember at the beginning we said that this is the beginning of two rulers, two masters, who are claiming ownership of the Israelites. And the Israelites are caught between. And right now they're choosing the wrong master. See, instead of going to Yahweh with their burdens and asking him to fight for them, they go back to their old master. Now, a master is required to take care of, he's he's obligated to protect his servants. So the Israelites are actually revealing that they still believe it's Pharaoh who takes care of them. And look what they say to Pharaoh again. Why do you treat your servants like this? Again, behold, your servants are beaten. They, they still believe they belong to Pharaoh. They, they haven't learned to trust their new identity as the people of God. Friends, when, when trials come, when, when suffering comes, or when the devil accuses you, when he says, there's no way God could love you, there is no relief to be found in running back to your old identity. There is no meaningful and lasting relief to be found in what used to enslave you. If you've known a period of intense suffering in your life, you've likely had this temptation, right? The suffering becomes intense, and you're tempted to binge on entertainment, throw yourself into work, The porn just looks like the perfect escape. 
or however you used to find relief. Anything just to consume your attention and distract you. But friends, that's like going back to Pharaoh for relief. The only way to fight off the enemy's attacks is to stand firm in our new identity, which is based on the promises of God. The, the relief we really need in those moments is the relief that comes from knowing you are at peace with your Creator. To know that He sees you, He cares for you in all your suffering, and that He will deliver you from all that ails you. Like the Israelites had the promise of Yahweh's rescue to hold on to, so do we have the promise of rescue. That Jesus came, He comes, He bears our shame, He takes our guilt, and He says, He says this. I will remember your sins no more. He's coming back, friends, to making, make all things right. That's the comfort we need. Second point, life under Yahweh. Well, I, I wish we were just getting to super cheery news here, uh, but, but we've we got to look now at what this text shows us about life with Yahweh as master. The, the first thing it shows us is obedience at times will be costly. You see that in the text this morning? In chapter 4, the, the Israelites agree to the Lord's plan of deliverance and worship. It, it's the sweet moments where they come to trust that the Lord has seen them and he's going to deliver them. And they agree with this plan. Okay, we're going to go to Pharaoh. And what happens? Their, their situation gets substantially worse. Friends, the, the Lord may be calling you or he has called you in the past to take a step of obedience against certain things you know are wrong. Things that if you are walking in obedience, you know you can't be a part of. And when you do obey, Pharaoh shows you here what the first reaction of the world is going to be. We're taking away your straw. The world is going to make life difficult. It might cost you a promotion, could cost you a job, could cost you a group of friends. But the Lord is warning you in this text, this can be a part of what it means to follow me. Man, um, how, how tempting would it have been if you're the Israelites to believe maybe we just did the wrong thing? There's no way we could be walking in the will of God and this happened to us. We must have taken a misstep at somewhere, at some point, right? But they were right where God wanted them to be. Man, if you are in a, in a very challenging situation right now, you really need to hear this you might be exactly where God intends you to be right now. I can't make blanket statements, but you do need to have this category that sometimes God calls us into seasons where it feels like you actually have no idea what he's doing. And you just have to trust him. And you've got to remember and hang on to what happened back in 413 or 431. It says this, And the people believed... And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. you got to remember that the Lord does see you in your affliction. That he's completely for you. That there are seasons to walking with the Lord. Uh, times where you're going to be built up and encouraged and times where it's going to feel like you have no idea what he's doing. Second thing it shows us is that Yahweh keeps his promises Though one of those promises is, is that we will have trouble. Uh, there is a real warning. If you have 
of rose-colored glasses about what the Christian life entails and free of suffering. This text really does call you to readjust your expectations. Look at the warning the Israelites received in chapter 4. It's verse 21. It says, And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Despite the suffering, it's important to point out that, that things were going exactly how Yahweh said they would. But look at the despondency of the Israelites when Pharaoh rejects their plea. This is 5, 20, and 21. The Israelite foremen that met with Moses and Aaron, who were waiting for them, as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And then Moses goes and he essentially relays the exact same messages back to God. Everybody's just totally discouraged. It's just despondency across the board. Nobody ends up handling it well. Instead of saying, okay, okay, Yahweh. Yahweh said this was going to happen. We knew it was going to get worse before it got better. Uh, this is terrible. This is, this is real suffering. But we trust God's going to take, it, take us out of this. W- what do they do? They lose their trust and they're overwhelmed with grief. Now, I, I'm not attempting to make light of the suffering here. R- r- rather, the point is this. The correct expectations around suffering substantially impact our ability to handle it. Pastor Timothy Keller, he he says that at least 50% of our experience of suffering is a result of us expecting we weren't going to suffer. It's, It's been said that no culture in the history of humankind does less to prepare us for the reality of suffering than our current culture. If we listen to our culture, we will assume that things should go well. But when we look at Scripture, it tells us that in this life we will have troubles. 1 Peter 4.12 says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Third point, um, God works through suffering. Friends, if we are going to know what it means to live under Yahweh as our master, we need to understand how he operates, don't we? And, and listen to this. This is, this is uncontroversial. The primary way in which God has worked to accomplish his purposes in history has been through suffering. We're at a point in the Exodus journey where the Israelites have really, they've just met Yahweh, getting to know him. And and we know that Yahweh actually really cares about showing the Israelites who he is six times, six times, um, during the plagues that are to come, God describes why he is doing like this. So that they know that I am Yahweh. He, He wants them to understand First, he shows up to them as the God who promises their deliverance, right? And, 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 and they have this sweet moment in 431. But then what happens is it's just it's, it's suffering. Things go from bad to worse. And then he's going to show them through the plagues a fuller picture of who he is. 
But, but why, why does Yahweh see fitting to let the Israelites suffer this way? What does this add and have to contribute to the picture of who he is? Why couldn't this just have been avoided, right? Surely God could have orchestrated Pharaoh to say no so he could get to the plagues without this increased suffering. But here's the principle. For sinful people in a broken world, suffering is essential to understanding who God is. For sinful people in a broken world, suffering is essential to understanding who God is. Look, if, if God plucks the Israelites out of Egypt with no harm or foul, it's just, what does it show them? What was the Israelites' big problem? We, we just needed some better circumstances, and if you just prom- give us that land that you promised to Abraham, then we're good. But in allowing the suffering, God is showing there is a deeper problem. There is a problem that is going to require suffering to fix. The Israelites were enslaved to something much more deadly than Pharaoh. They were enslaved to sin, which is always rooted, as we've seen, in a distrust of God. And it shows here in their response. See, if the Israelites had gotten the promised land without getting God, in the end, they would have been ruined. Listen again to what Tim Keller has to say. He says, any bad thing God will bring in only in order to cure you of the things that can really destroy you in the long run. So you see, friends, in all of us, there is a distrust of God. And there is a temptation to worship a God of our own making that operates always in the way that we see fit. A God that deals with our troubles in the way that we see fit. This is really the God of our own making that we trust. See, one of the reasons that God allows them to go through the suffering is so they can kill those gods of their making and are distrusted in him. Those things that can actually, in the end, really destroy us. He he wants to show us who he really is. Uh, Margaret Sparhawk, she, she was a missionary who dedicated her life into translating the Bible into the languages of remote tribes in Ecuador. Uh, key to her work was a man named Pedro who spoke one of the local dialects and was willing to both help her with translation and in bringing that translation to the tribe. Uh, he was one of a kind and like a total answer to her prayers. For years they worked together, uh, but one day he came down with a very serious infection. Margaret had some penicillin on her and, and he asked her, please give this to me. And within seconds, He experienced a whole body reaction to the penicillin, and shortly after that, he dies. And along with it, go years of Margaret's work. What's going on? Margaret takes this huge step of obedience. Man, that is so brave to spend your life doing that. (laughs) And what is she met with? Inexplicable suffering. It just seems senseless, right? There's no happy ending with the tribe. There's no, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. None of that. After a long reflection, she writes this. God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. See, what she realized is during all of her service to God that she was actually serving a graven image. 
a God of my plans that always acted in the way she thought fit, a God to her that was predictable. If I do this, God's going to give me this. But when she realized that God's ways are above her ways, and at times he's going to operate in ways that are totally above us, that we can't understand, he started reorienting her from seeing him as an accomplice to our God. Friends, the Israelites, they might have thought they had an accomplice in Yahweh. And they needed to learn they had a God. See, only if you see God as your God can you trust him when suffering comes and there's no explicable reason. And if we grant to him that he is God, of course, of course there could be reasons why he's allowed suffering into our life that we can't understand. When I took my one-year-old to go get a needle, I couldn't possibly make her understand why daddy was allowing her to go through something so painful. And and if there is an all-knowing God, there is a far bigger gap between me and that God than me and my one-year-old. Friends, we need to have a category for, I just don't understand, but that doesn't mean you don't have a good reason. And when we grasp that, we can be free from always needing an explanation. We can be free to let go of our own ideas about how everything should operate (laughs) with then we can be free. And then we can learn to trust the one who has given us every reason to trust him. I said earlier that that suffering is essential for us to understand who God is. But what's also true is that God's suffering for you is essential to him fully communicating who he is to you. Let me say that again. I said earlier that that suffering is essential for us to understand who God is. But what also is true is God's suffering on your behalf is essential for him to fully communicate who he is to you. Charles Spurgeon, the 19th century preacher, said this, "It, It is at the cross that we see the glory of God displayed in all its fullness. In the suffering and death of Jesus, we see the depth of God's love for us as well as his justice and mercy. Friends, without the suffering of Jesus, we wouldn't know the extent of who he is. We wouldn't know the extent of his love for us. He did it so that we would know Yahweh, the true Yahweh. The cross is where we see the fullness of his glory. And it's there where we can learn to trust him. If the primary way in which God has worked to accomplish his purposes in the world is through suffering. Let us not be surprised when we are called to suffer for him. He is still the master that we can ultimately trust. Our suffering now is only preparing for us a weight of glory beyond all comparison. And though we suffer now for a little while, our master will soon come back. He will end all sin and suffering. He will make all things right. Let's pray. Oh, Father, this is a a heavy word. We ask that you would give us the faith to trust you as our good and perfect master. Lord, would you deliver us from the schemes of the evil one?
who would attempt to enslave us? Who would accuse us? Lord, would you make us those who would be content to suffer for your glory? Knowing that through your suffering, you have shown yourself to be the one who we can really trust. May you grant us the grace and peace to trust that you know what is best. Amen.